Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. everyone. Welcome to The Last Word. I'm so excited to be here with my two co-hosts today. We have two amazing people who I get to work with. We have... Johnny. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Johnny. And we also have... JD. It's good to be here as always. Good to be here. Um, I'm so excited to kind of do a little recap of what we talked about in Crosstalk on Thursday. We went over Acts 9 and we talked about Saul's conversion into the infamous Paul. And I really um, liked what you said at Crosstalk JD, because I think it's something that we've heard a lot. If we grew up in the church, specifically me, I've heard that a lot. And so I really liked the perspective that you brought on it. And the first thing I wanted to talk about was the the dangers that come with this story that we can assume that um, real conversion is radical conversion in the moment. And so I wanted to ask you guys, how do you think that knowing that our conversions don't have to be radical in the way that Saul's was. How do you think this can set us free in our walk with Christ? Absolutely. I think that the biggest thing that we have to realize about our story is that our story is ultimately not about us. When we want to make our story about ourselves, then there's all of this pressure to have something radical and transformative happen in our lives because we believe it needs to be about us. The really cool part about our story is that our story isn't about us when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. God has done all of the work to bring us to the moment that we accept him and to know him and are brought back into right relationship with him. And because of that, all of our stories have power because they're not about what we have done to bring ourselves to God, but rather what God has done to bring us back into right relationship with him. And that takes all of the pressure off of us um, to have these radical transformative experiences. And that's not to diminish those experiences. Those things really are a testament to the power of Jesus in a person's life when we hear those stories. But it's just there to remind us to not discount what God has done in our own life. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And I like to think of uh, our testimonies as like, undeniable proof of God and that, you know, I grew up in the church and I mean, it's just as powerful and radical, I think, to be able to say like, hey, I was saved by God and I'm going to heaven. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool to also say like, and it didn't take me having to run and fall so far away to do it. And so I think that that's just as much of a powerful testament as, you know, something as radical and instant as Paul was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that really does set us free, understanding that it's it's God's story. It's not our story. Mm-hmm. And no matter how cool or big we think it is, it's all part of his plan. And I think that, that can just be so amazing and so freeing in the way that we live our lives. And so the second question I wanted to ask is, when Jesus calls Saul's name personally, it says so much about the character of God, that he's a personable God. And so how is learning about the character of God for you guys set you free in the way that you you walk with Christ and the way that you love others? Yeah, I remember when I was about 12, learning about that personal relationship with God for the first time and hearing it for the first time, just being like, man, this is completely different from my viewpoint of God. It's, you know, no longer like, me looking up to heaven and being like, okay, he's up there and I'm down here with everyone else. Hopefully he hears this and catches this prayer. Mm -hmm. But now it's like, okay, he knows my struggles and he feels what I'm going through. 
And it's really cool to be able to learn more and have that personal relationship because now I'm able to be like, okay, God loves me in this way. So I need to love others in this way as well. And so that's helped me to kind of, as JD talked about, take the focus off of just me and kind of put it into, you know, God's mission into the world. We, we have this tendency, I think, because of the, the world in which we live in. And we live in a judicial society where mm-hmm. if you do something wrong, you go before a judge and he pronounces either guilt or innocence. Mm-hmm. And so that is oftentimes the way in which we grow up viewing a relationship with God, that he is yeah. this impersonal God who sits up on a throne and all he does all day is keep a list of all of the positive things that I've done and all of the negative things that I've done. And I have to fall on the right side of that line when I get to the end of my life to prove that I am worthy of eternity with him. And what we see here in this moment is that God breaks into time and space in sending the person of Jesus to offer us a personal relationship and that he wants a relationship with us individually and he calls our name which frees us from all of this performance anxiety of having to fall on the right side of the line Mm -hmm. to be good enough for a relationship with God it's he wants us every bit of us and he gradually moves us over a lifetime more and more to become like him and that takes Mm -hmm. all of the pressure in the world off of us to perform and to have to do or say or be all of the right things in any given moment. Absolutely. I think it's one of the most liberating things ever to to have that realization that you don't have to earn your love for Christ or your the love of Christ and that you can you can walk in the freedom that he offers. It's so liberating to me. And JD, you said something that I thought was really profound in the message. You said that in a moment Saul became utterly powerless um, the moment that he met Jesus. And what do you think this says about our relationship with the Father and the dependence that we have on him and that we ought to have on him throughout the day and the way we live our lives? That is a great question. And I think that it goes back to, and I, and I completely give all of the credit to the scholar that I was reading this quote from, but he <laughs> says that it's not the weakness of Saul so much as the power of Christ that the author is concerned to show in this. And for me, it's like, wow. When it it puts me in a position of being in a sense of awe before God, that he is all powerful, that he is all knowing, that he is all of these things. And And it brings me into an understanding of who I am before a holy and blameless God, that he in this moment breaks into time and space and proves to Saul, that he is who he says he is. And that is a really remarkable thing for us to see. And it, again, for me, it comes back to freedom in that moment, that it's not about me being good enough or doing enough or anything of that nature. But it's like, I see my complete and utter depravity. And I see the goodness of God. Yeah, I totally agree with that. that I just keep thinking back to when we are less, he is more. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, we, unfortunately, sometimes takes in rock bottom to hear what God's trying to tell you. And, you know, that's what we see here in Paul and that he just, you know, when one instance, you know, turns to complete dependence on God, I think that's so beautiful in that. I see that in myself a lot and it does really point to the power of God, I believe. And it, I think really goes to show that, you know, <clears throat> I can often think like, who am I that God can use, you know, me as, some powerful story for his kingdom. And then I could like look at Paul and be like, 
who is he that, you know, God can use a, you know, Christian killer to uh, create such a powerful story. And so I just love that, you know, God was able to bring someone so powerful, so high of fame and like someone that everyone like looked up to in that society and just brought him down to his knees to be able to just worship Jesus as King and, you know, begin to write the new Testament. And, you know, who's to say that like God can't do that in my life and the people around me that I, you know, can lose hope on too. So I really just like love that story. And, you know, it sometimes takes me having to go on my knees to uh, realize that, you know, God really has a greater plan for me than I have for myself. Mm -hmm, For sure. I think we can easily think of ourselves as these independent beings who don't need anything or anyone, but in reality, praise God that we're dependent beings who who need him because it really does change our lives and and save us in all the ways. Um, Well, I want to go ahead and pass the last word right on over to JD. JD, do you have any updates or anything coming up for us? Absolutely. Um, so we we looked at this past week, the story of Saul and his uh, experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And inside of that, when when God uh, appears to Ananias, he prophesies and tells about Saul's mission to the Gentiles and mm-hmm. how that is, is coming forth and that it's really going to change from first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And we see that God switches the order there and he says, Gentiles and kings before he says the people of Israel. And so as we turn the page uh, and here to Acts chapter 10, we're going to see the story of Cornelius and how that uh, overlaps and intertwines with uh, a vision that Peter gets and how this really begins and uh, serves as the catalyst for the mission to the Gentiles going forward and uh, the reaction of all of the apostles here in the city of Jerusalem afterwards. And so it's going to be a really cool kind of in the last three weeks, we have seen uh, all of the catalytic events that are pushing forward the mission of God out from the city of Jerusalem, from Judea and Samaria. And now it's going to go out to the ends of the earth with the inclusion of Saul in that mission and Peter playing the role here with Cornelius. So it'll be a really fun week. It's a fascinating story where we really get to see God's sovereignty come in and begin to change the hearts and minds of people who didn't even know that they were going to interact the day before that they did. So um, stay tuned and we will see you guys on Thursday night. Welcome, welcome. My name is JD. If this is your first time here or you guys haven't been here for a long time, I have the distinct honor and privilege of serving as a crosstalk pastor here with Cypress Creek Church. And uh, last week was like a whirlwind of a week for me. And I, I'm still in grad school right now. And so, and I go to a school that's actually out in California and they work their semesters very differently. And so school for me just started this past week. And so this last week, I had the first week of class. And the first week of class, you always have the very awkward, like, introduction thing. And because my school is in California, I take all my classes online. It's the even more awkward Canvas, like, introduction deal where you have to, like, record a video. At least all of my professors, like, record a video of yourself, of you talking about yourself. And it's just the most uncomfortable thing in the world for me. But it was kind of cool because there was one guy in the class who... Uh, he still works doing a lot of what I did before I actually came here to Crosstalk. So he works in the outdoor industry. He does some back, backpacking guiding and he spends a lot of time in the mountains and he and I were taking a chance to connect. And it's kind of one of those things that when you work in an industry like that, you're only like four or five steps removed from someone. 
And so we got to a point in the conversation where we actually knew someone like we both knew the same person, right? And so when I started working in the outdoor industry and right around the year 2015, it felt like this massive place. This, all of these people all over the country doing all of these different things. And the longer I was in it, I realized that the industry was very, very small. And the outdoor industry isn't the only one like this. If you're in churches, actually it's most kind of areas of expertise or industry or something of that nature, even business, where once you're inside of those spaces, the world actually becomes very, very small. And everyone knows, you you seem to know everyone in that world. And so I would meet somebody, I would go someplace new, I would meet someplace new, and we almost always knew, had a mutual friend at some level. And so years back, I had a friend who we went probably two years before we actually got a chance to meet each other, but we existed in the same circles. We lived in different states at the time, but we knew a lot of the same people and had decently the same group of friends. And so over time, what would happen is we would go on trips, we would go hang out places, and you begin to hear stories about this other person. And you begin to feel like you get to know this other person, even though you still haven't met them in person. And I was told all of these stories about this guy, and some of them being these crazy stories, almost unbelievable. My buddy got caught in a 500-year historic flood on a river in southwest Texas that should have killed him. He traveled 15 miles in like 10 minutes on the water. It rose like 25 feet. And so these people start to take on kind of a bit of a mythical characteristic, right? It's like that person can't exist in real life. And I would have friends who would come to me and they're like, you just have to wait until you meet him. You have to wait until you meet him because I promise you I'm telling the truth. And so after about two years, he and I actually had the chance to hang out for the very first time. It was a really funny interaction because at some level, we both already knew all of these things about one another. And so it was this instant connection where we felt like we'd known each other for a long time, but in the same sense, it felt really weird because there wasn't that introductory period of getting to know someone. And so I don't think I'm the only person who has people in my life like this. I think that it's especially prevalent, honestly, in college more than anything, or at least it was for me, where you, in your college life, you interact in all of these different circles. You have your church friends, you have your roommates, you have people from your classes, and maybe you also have people that you uh, go and you study with, or it's people that you met at the gym or in an intramural sport or something like that. And all of these groups loosely overlap. Each one of them has some of the same people, but it's not the exact same group. And so inside of those overlap, it's oftentimes the case where you hear about somebody for a good long while before you actually get a chance to meet them. And oftentimes, people, uh, and me included, we, we tend to embellish stories or we want to make something sound more spectacular than it actually is. And so you have people who like live, when you meet them for the first time, they live up to all of your expectations. They live up to all of the stories that you heard about people. And you also have people who are kind of a letdown. I I feel like the stories that are most common about that are when somebody finally meets a role model or a hero or an athlete or something like that. 
and you hear about them meeting this person that they've looked up to for 20 years, they've watched on TV, and they're like, yeah, they were kind of a bummer. And it's because there's this massive expectation that has been placed on them to live, that they have to live up to, and they're just a normal human being. And I think that the person that we meet in our story today is that way for many people. And we have read a lot of his writings. We value his opinion. We know that he has incredible teachings. And maybe we loosely know his origin story, but we don't actually know him. We haven't met him for ourselves. And so we exist in this space where you kind of know pieces and parts to the story without being able to put together the whole. And so what my hope is today is that we get to know a really integral person here for us in the, in the narrative of the Bible. And the first time that we hear about him is in Acts chapter 8, where we're introduced to the character of Saul. And it's the person of Saul really, uh, he becomes known as Paul. And so you, you can go into the New Testament. He wrote all of the Pauline epistles. And so a decent section of the New Testament is, is all about him as a person. And no conversion to Jesus, no conversion to Jesus is more renowned than Saul's. It's a really a miraculous story. And so if you've been around church, any church, for any length of time, you probably have heard some form of a paraphrased version of his story. Or maybe it's like the VeggieTales version that when you were in Sunday school growing up, you are like, oh, I kind of, I, I can track with what happens. And the first time Saul is mentioned in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 8, where it says that he, Saul, approved of the stoning of Stephen, who we talked about, who Paulina talked about last week. And from that point forward, Luke tells us that Saul was going around and he was ravaging the church. They was entering house after house, and he was dragging men and women off to put them in prison for following Jesus. And so from Acts chapter 8, we turn the page here to Acts chapter 9, and this is the story of Saul. It begins and it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voices, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Paul, for behold, he is praying. In verse 12, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine 
to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem on those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And this passage tells us that Saul heard a voice on the road to Damascus. And when he heard that voice, what he hears is the voice that ultimately is the thing that converts him to a belief in Jesus. And the Lord's intent here in speaking to Saul is evidently not to frighten him into, con into conversion. It is actually to call him. The primary purpose of these sort of visionary episodes throughout the book of Acts is not to convert non-believers. What we see is that the preaching of the gospel is what converts people. And these visionary episodes really call prophets to accomplish God's purposes in the world. And the scripture tells us that Saul does not recognize the voice that he hears and he asks, who are you, Lord? And his honest question demonstrates that he understands the significance of his experience from his reading of the Old Testament scriptures. So we see that Saul here, who is a Pharisee, he has been raised from a child to know the Hebrew scriptures, and he knows these sorts of experiences from the Old Testament. And what he hears here is how so many of the prophets were traditionally called throughout the Old Testament. And so he's remarkably attentive to the voice that calls him. And for this reason, you can tell that Saul is absolutely attentive to what is said next. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Saul's brief exchange with Jesus definitively proves what will become the central claim of the gospel message for, for Paul as he go, travels throughout the known world, that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected and he is the Messiah and Lord. God made the crucified Jesus alive as Messiah and Lord. And Jesus's response to Saul is short because his very appearance to Saul exposes the fallacy that Saul is believing, that Jesus never raised from the dead. And what we see here is that Jesus is not another dead pretender to the messianic throne. What we see is that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Christ child who came to save all humanity from their sins. And what real choice does, Paul, does Saul have other than to believe in Jesus in this moment? And I do very briefly want to point out the Lord's use of personal names, personal names and his direct appeal to Saul. Because in his use 
of personal names and in his direct appeal to Saul, what we see is the intimate personal nature of God. The living Jesus recruits Saul personally into the faith and then commissions him for ministry. What we see here is that the God of the Bible is a personal God, that he's not far off and distant from us, but that God calls individuals by name to come and to know him and to be called to his purposes. And what we see next is, as a result of Saul's experience with Jesus, is remarkable. He's left completely blind. And one scholar puts it in a brilliant way. He says, Saul, who a moment ago was so powerful, has now become utterly powerless. But it's not the weakness of Saul so much as the power of Christ that Luke is concerned to show to the reader. That it's the power of Christ at work in this moment, not the weakness of Saul that Luke wants us to notice in the book of Acts. For as significant as Saul's experience here is, so too is the reaction of Ananias. And so coincidentally to Saul's vision, Ananias receives a vision from the Lord. And again, we see here God using these visionary episodes to call people to prophetic tasks, specific callings from the Lord. And Ananias is one of the followers of Jesus that Saul was seeking to persecute in Damascus. And so it's incredibly ironic then that Ananias himself is called to heal Saul and to deliver him so that he can accomplish his divine calling. And I really want to focus in on Ananias's response here to God's calling. Ananias's original response to God was to say, here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. A very simple sentence. And this exact wording is meant to remind us of Samuel's story in 1 Samuel chapter 3, of Isaiah's calling in Isaiah chapter 6, of Abraham's calling in the book of Genesis. And that ultimately, these all point to God's prophetic calling that we see throughout the Old Testament. In each visionary episode, there are so many echoes for us back to the Old Testament. And what we see and what is really important for us to notice that then is that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. That all of these instances in the Old Testament that we're now seeing play out with Ananias and Saul are to really key in on the key themes for us in the biblical narrative, that this is a unified story that leads us to Christ's atoning work on the cross. And so we see here in Ananias a willingness to go wherever God calls, a willingness to go wherever God calls, to be fully obedient and surrendered to the will of God, regardless of whether that makes the right strategic or analytical sense. And my response, on the other hand, would have been very, very conditional. It would have been vastly different because I knew, and Ananias knew, the power that Saul had to persecute him, to put him in prison. And here Ananias responds with, here I am, Lord, fully submitted and surrendered to the will of God. And the climax of this whole dramatic story is the Lord's prophecy of Saul's forthcoming mission to Ananias. And in that prophecy, he says, that basically we see that the plot line of Saul's mission for the rest of the book of Acts take place. And significantly, for the first time in Acts, the international stage of the church's mission is directly tied then 
to Saul's divine calling. Saul is to be the Lord's witness to the ends of the earth. And what we see in that prophecy is something very interesting. The narrative has always been first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And right there in its, uh, oh gosh, verse 15, it says, Gentiles and kings before the people of Israel. And so it's a, a dramatic role reversal. And what we see in that is that this demonstrates for us the heart of God for all people, not just the Jewish people. And it signifies the movement of the mission of the people of God to the ends of the earth. That is now working its way outwards from Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so Saul, after three days of blindness, meets Ananias who lays his hands on him. And the immediate restoration of Saul's sight and his filling with the Holy Spirit here symbolizes God's affirmation of his salvation and his divine calling for his purposes. And with his return to normalcy, verse 20 says that Paul, that Saul began to preach Jesus in the synagogue. That Paul began to teach and proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. And Luke's repeated use of the word immediately when talking about this talks about Saul's actions and it, and it leaves the impression of a sense of urgency that he couldn't help but share his experience of what God had done in his life, that he couldn't help but talk about the reality that he knew to be true, which was Jesus. And everything else in his life could wait, but he couldn't wait to tell people about what he had seen and heard. And the location of this in the synagogue and the substance of what he says there, that Jesus is the son of God, indicates his immediate understanding of his identity as a child of God. His immediate understanding of his identity as a child of God. Because as a high-ranking Jewish religious male, as a Pharisee, someone of importance in the temple, what he does is he goes immediately to the place that would grant him status and power. And when he enters that space in the synagogue, he begins to teach exactly what he had been so heavily persecuting. He walked into the place that would give him the greatest audience in that day and age, and he began to teach exactly against what he had been persecuting. And this underscores this concept of identity in a remarkable way, that he didn't avoid the places where people would, where he wanted to maintain this image as somebody who was important, that he was somebody of power, but he walked directly into those spaces where he had influence and showed a dramatic change as a follower of Jesus. And in this, we see that our conversion or our acceptance of the work of Jesus is a means to a missionary end. Our acceptance of Jesus is a means to a missionary end. Paul is converted specifically for a calling. And this pattern of Paul's salvation is typical of the book of Acts. What we see is that personal transformation never collapses into uh, self-absorption or self-importance or uh, this sense of selfishness about what they had experienced. Rather, a personal salvific experience with Jesus prepares the believer to be of use in the kingdom of God. To say it in a more modern or easily understood way, that means that when we come to salvation in Jesus Christ, we're not called to just sit around on our rear ends waiting for him to come again. 
That is not the purpose of our salvation. We, like Saul, are called to step out in faith and to share what God has done in our lives. And there are two dangers that we really must guard against when we talk about this aspect of Christian conversion. There are two dangers, and the first of which is that we as followers of Jesus should not assume that authentic Christianity in and of itself is always characterized by uh, conversion experiences that uh, display this radical personal transformation. And what I mean by that is that when we think about when we sit in churches or what we hear that has the most impact on us, ultimately the testimonies we hear that move us the most deeply tend to display this orientation towards dramatic transformation, right? Which makes sense. They display the power of the living Jesus in a remarkable way in people's lives. When people do an absolute 180 in their life, those are the stories that really inspire us, that have deep meaning for us. However, many Christians, myself included, cannot remember a time in which we didn't know Jesus. I spent my entire life growing up in the church. And for many of us, we gradually grow into Christian maturity. That it's not through these giant leaps of conversion experiences, but it's the small steps nurtured by loving, caring people in our lives, by a loving, caring community around us. And on the other hand, believers should not diminish or ignore the resources that God has given the church to transform people. What we see here immediately is that Saul is careful to place himself within a faith community, inside of a faith community, and that faith community affirms his salvation and protects his divine calling. They affirm the things that God has said to him and and encourage him to walk in the way that the Lord has called him. And in the same way, we need to be careful to surround ourselves with people in a community that do the same for us, to not ignore the resources that God has given us to hold us accountable and to encourage us in a life of faith. This community, a community of faith, is our support system and accountability as we seek to follow Jesus in our life. Our community of faith serves a critical, critical purpose in the life of the believer that shouldn't be ignored. And what we see in the marvel, really, of the book of Acts is that both experiences are held together as parts of a mutually informing whole. And what I mean by that is that this is meant to show us a holistic view of a life of faith. Does that make sense to everybody? So these two sorts of things are held together, these personal transformational experiences and the resources of the community of faith. And both of those things make up the, the church that is emerging in this sense. And when we sit back and we reflect upon the story of Saul, we realize something for us. And, we re- and the thing that we realize is that our stories have power. In the same way that Saul's story has power. And they have incredible power because they're all about what God has done in our life. That there, that the God of the universe broke into time and space to create a way for you to be in right relationship with him. That is an incredibly powerful story 
whether it involves uh, divine visions of Jesus or not, that is a remarkable thing that the God of the universe cares about you so personally that he gave his son on the cross so that you might know him. And those stories need to be shared. Growing up, I was very ashamed of my story. I was scared of telling my story because I thought that my story had no power because I didn't like make these massively bad life decisions and then Jesus changes my life dramatically. It's like, I, I have nothing to talk about. Why would I share my story with the people around me? It's because I wasn't understanding that it's God at work in my life and that's what makes the story powerful that we are all sinful and fallen human beings and God rescues us. And that is the makings of a great story in each of our lives. And as we come to realize the power in our stories and we surround ourselves with a faith community that affirms those stories, what happens is that we come to a new sense of boldness due to the security that we have in Christ. That we can walk into the places where we have influence, where we have favor, where we have some level of leadership, and we can walk into those places and share the name of Jesus into those spaces. And it's only when we become secure in our identity that we're going to be willing to take a step out in faith for Jesus. One of the most uncomfortable last year was kind of a wash because we would come on campus, we would want to talk to people about Crosstalk, and there was nobody here. And one of the coolest parts about this school year is that if you just go and stand in the quad in between classes, there's thousands of people walking through. Thousands of people. And so the first week we go and we're going to go do outreach and we're going to go hand out cards and we're just simply going to invite people to cross. And I remember I showed up and I'm standing there and I'm the guy in charge and I have all of these butterflies, all of these butterflies. And that was all of my insecurities speaking to me in that one given moment, right? Fear of rejection, fear of not being liked, all of these things, all of these insecurities. And what I realized is that as soon as I took out, took the, the first step of faith and asked a guy if he wanted to come to Crosstalk and he told me no, boom. Wow, you know what? Everything's gonna be all right. And it helped me to live into my identity in that space. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter whether somebody tells me no or not. Because my identity is not wrapped up in their affirmation. It's not wrapped up in what they think of me. Or if they think I'm just a lunatic standing there handing out cards. Ultimately, my security in my identity in Christ is going to be the only thing that moves me to take those steps out in faith to talk to the people around me, the people that I know, the people that I don't know, about a God who loves and cares for them deeply. So let us as a community more fully embrace the story that God has given us and the community around us so that we can be the people that God has created us to be, to live into our identity as sons and daughters of the God Most High. May we, like Saul, embrace the call that the Lord has put on our lives to be active in the mission of God to the world around us. Let me pray. Thanks again for tuning in to the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Make sure you are following Crosstalk on social media at 
crosstalk underscore txst. If you have any questions for the Crosstalk team, you can send us a message on those pages. We will see you here again next week.